good evening to all of you here. What a great time. I sure enjoyed singing with you and praising the Lord together. What a wonderful time. Um, as Kimball said, I'm, my name's Tom Short. I um, know a lot of people here through the years. I go to Linworth Road Church up in the North End, which planted this church how long ago? Nine years ago, nine years ago, and, uh, and I'm so excited to see how this church has grown, all the people that God has brought here, the things God has done in your lives, and indeed it's a blessing to sing with you. I always enjoy coming to see Kimball sing, I'm a little partial to this gal right here, because uh, I remember her singing at our piano at home so often, so it's good to be here with you all tonight. I'd like to talk tonight on a question that maybe you have heard, maybe you haven't, but I hear it often. And that is people ask me, Tom, what makes you think your religion's any better than someone else's? Have you ever heard that one? What makes you think your religion, i.e. the Christian religion, is any better than any other religion? I would imagine this is something we have to face because our world's changing, our country's changing. You know, when I grew up, which wasn't that long ago, I didn't know a single Muslim person, single Hindu person. I grew up right here in Worthington, Ohio. Single Muslim person, single Hindu person, single Buddhist person. There just weren't any in our school that I was aware of. Everyone was from a Christian or pseudo-Christian or at least would say they're Christian background. Of course, our world has really changed. I'm sure everyone in this room knows people of other religions, have friends of people of other religions, and regularly runs into them. And the question becomes, what makes us think our religion's any better than anyone else's, right? And even the very thought of it, to think that one is better than another, that kind of grates against our multiculturalism, doesn't it? And our pluralistic society. It's kind of like saying... You know, uh, uh, getting into an argument over, you know, what's the best flavor of ice cream. Now, we know, you know, we know it's mint chocolate chip, but some people might think it's cookies and cream, it's pralines, it's what? Cotton candy, Cotton candy ice cream, you know, like we could get in a good fight over this, I'll bet, you know. And, and, uh, and so if someone were to say, you know, this is the best ice cream, dogmatically state it, Others might be offended. They might even come up and say, well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. That's what you think. That's not what I think. Because let's face it, flavors of ice cream, it's just an opinion, right? It's just an opinion. Just like what shirt looks good, just like what haircut looks good, just like whether you like Mexican or Italian, speaking of food, not people. And, uh, you know, and... And all of these, you know, these different things, so many of these things, it's nothing but your opinion. And so to state it dogmatically creates a reaction in people. But there's other statements that don't create a reaction in people. They don't say, like if you were to say two plus two is four, not seven. No one would say to you, well, that's your truth. I don't, it's not my truth. If someone were to say to you, you know, the, the Holocaust didn't happen, they wouldn't say, or the Holocaust did happen, someone wouldn't say to you, well, that's your truth, not my truth. 
there are some things we know are, are factual, are actual, are real, right? I mean, you know, we know mathematics. We know science. We know the Bucks are the best team in the country. We know some of these things. Whoa, how did you, that one went over our heads, huh? Okay, there's some things we know are factual. There are other things that are just opinion. And so my question, where does religion belong? Where do you think religion belongs? Is religion merely a matter of opinion? If Christianity works for you, great. If Islam works for you, fine. If Buddhism is your thing, great. If you don't need a religion, fine. It's just a matter of opinion. Is that all it is? Or is somehow religion belong over on this other side of things that are either right or wrong? Like when it comes to math, you've either got the right answer or you don't. It comes to science, you've got the right answer or you don't. It comes to history, you've got the right answer or you don't. Is religion opinion or is it based on truth? Is it truth that can be true for you and not for me? Or is it absolute truth for all people, all places? I'd like to make the case tonight that I think religion belongs over on the truth side. It belongs over here, but we live in a culture, in a world, where people think it belongs over on the opinion side. And this is one of our, an obstacle we must learn how to overcome in our communication with people and our understanding of people is that it's not just a matter of opinion. It's a matter of truth. Now, why would I say that? When someone will ask me then, you know, is it your truth, my truth, that's true for you, not for me, that's um, uh, what makes you think yours is better, things of this nature, I'd like to say that what makes Christianity better or what makes it true is Jesus. And I'd like to give you tonight five things about Jesus Christ that are unique to him amongst various great religious leaders. Now, in saying what I say, I want to give a little disclaimer. I'm not here to diss another religion tonight, okay? That's not my purpose. But I am going to make some contrasts and comparisons between the Christian faith and other other great religious between Jesus and other great religious leaders. I don't say this to put him down. I say it primarily that we'd be educated. Because in my years, as I've studied other religions, I've learned a lot of things about the great religious leaders that really were enlightening to me and surprising for me to discover. I thought I'd, I thought I'd understood. I thought basically growing up, I thought all the religions were essentially the same. I thought, you know, Jesus was our guy over here in the West. Muhammad was for the people in the Middle East. You know, Buddha way out in the Far East. And they're basically all the same. They basically all did the same things, said the same things, taught the same things, did the same things. It's just we all, different cultures, have different great religious figures. I found that's not the case. And so tonight I want to talk to you about five, five simple things that set Jesus Christ apart from anyone else who's ever lived and make him unique amongst all and make the Christian faith true. These are all going to be statements of fact these are all going to be things that the Bible tells us are factual things about Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone believes them. 
But they're not presented to us as opinions. They're not presented to us as something we can have an opinion about. They're presented to us, these five facts are presented to us as something that is true. And if you believe it is true, it will affect you in a positive way. If you don't believe it is true, it is still true nonetheless. It just won't affect you. It won't bless you. You won't have the benefit of it, okay? Five things here. You ready? Number one, Jesus claimed to be God. Stop and think about this one. Of the different great religious leaders, Muhammad claimed he was a prophet. Buddha claimed he was enlightened. Krishna, by the way, the, the god of the, uh, for the Hindus, probably was only a mythological figure because he lived tens of thousands of years ago, long, long, long time ago, before, or allegedly, but claimed, but these different ones, Muhammad, a, uh, a prophet, Buddha, a, uh, an enlightened one, but Jesus said he was the son of God. Muhammad said, follow Allah. Buddha said, follow the light within. Jesus said, follow me. That was his call. Jesus called us. He said, because he was the Messiah, the son of God, that he deserved and called upon people to follow him. He was the Savior, and he presented himself as the Lord. Now, Lord means more than just a master. Lord means more than, than just uh, someone in charge, an employer or something of this nature. When he called himself Lord, the scripture is referring to this as the divine one. Whoever, quoting from scripture, will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus was presented as this Lord who if you call upon him, he can save you. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 5. And there's so many verses on this. Matter of fact, the whole book of John was written to show us that Jesus is the divine son of God. This was the theme of this book. But in John chapter 5, we see Jesus talking about his some of the claims he made of being one with God, of being, well, let's just let him speak for himself. Chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Did you know other religions, the Christian religion, we were, we've been taught to call God Father. The Lord's Prayer begins this way, our Father who art in heaven, Jesus taught us to pray. But not all religions pray that way. There are some religions that that's considered blasphemy. There are some religions, if you were to call God your Father, you should, you'd reject it from the religion. This is a Christian concept to refer to God as father and to speak to him in this personal way. And so here Jesus was calling God his father and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all up in arms about this. What do you mean calling him father? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're equal with God? How could you say such a, this is blasphemy what you're saying. And they, were, they wanted to kill him for it. It was so alien to the, their way of thinking. Well, how did Jesus respond? Verse 19, 
Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, referring to himself, can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. So referring to God as Father. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. What's Jesus saying? They're all upset. What do you mean calling God your Father? Who do you think you are? And Jesus goes on, he says, number one, everything I do, it's something I saw my Father doing. Number two, I'm going to give, just like the Father raises the dead, just like the Father gives life to people, that's what I'm going to do. I have the capacity, I have the ability to give life, to raise the dead and give people life. And then he goes on to say, and not only that, the Father has given me the responsibility, the honor, the privilege to judge all humanity. Jesus is claiming one day, I'm the judge of the earth. You think you're going to stand before God someday and answer for your life? You're going to stand before me and answer. I mean, just picture that. Here he, here he was. I mean, he was flesh and bones right in front of him, 30 years old. You're going to stand before me one day. You're going to account to me for how you've lived your life. And in light of this, that I give life, in light of the fact that, you will one, that I will one day judge you, in light of the fact I do everything the Father tells me, you must Honor me just as you would the Father. Imagine that. You've got to treat me, speak of me, relate to me, honor me just as you would my Father in heaven. Jesus is making some astonishing claims here. He's claiming to be God. Other writers wrote about John. The book of John starts, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The word was God. All things came into being through him. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. The New Testament writers knew this. That they saw him as God. They saw him as divine. They saw him as the Lord. And Jesus made these claims. Jesus claimed to be God. More than a prophet. Many people say, well, we honor him as a great prophet. No, he's more than a prophet. He's more than an enlightened one. He's more than a teacher. He's more than anything else. He is, and the claim was, astonishingly, he is God come in the flesh. But there's a second thing the Bible presents to us, and it's either true or it's not. Either Jesus really is God come in the flesh, or he's not. It's not a matter of opinion. If he is, and you believe it, you're right. If he is and you don't believe it, you're wrong. If he isn't and you don't believe it, you're right. And if he isn't and you do believe it, you're wrong, right? You got that? Okay, good. Let's move on. Point number two. You know, it's been said amazing claims require amazing evidence. What's the amazing evidence that Jesus did? 
I had submit, we're going to get to the big one at the end of the night, but I submit the really big one is his miracles. His miracles. And in the Bible, you can't read the Bible without seeing the miracles of Christ. I mean, he did all kinds of amazing things. He healed the sick, the lame, the deaf, the dumb, the blind. One day, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and he thought Jesus would be bringing in this great kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 11, it had not worked out as he thought because he had uh, said some things made King Herod upset. King Herod had him arrested. He was living in a dungeon, in a prison, in a dungeon. And it was probably cold, damp, dirty, smelly, sick, very uncomfortable. And so he sent, in Matthew 11, he sends to Jesus, his disciples. And he asked this question, are you really the Messiah or are we supposed to be waiting for somebody else? I imagine he'd gotten a bit discouraged. I think that's probably what happened. He'd gotten discouraged. His, this wasn't working out the way he thought. He thought, you know, he, he, he was following Jesus, announcing Jesus, and here he is now in dungeon. He thought it was going to, you know, he thought they were going to be king. Jesus was going to be the king and rule, overthrow the Romans, all this stuff. It wasn't working out the way he thought. And so he was doubting. And it's interesting to me how Jesus dealt with this doubt. He didn't say, naughty, naughty, naughty. How dare you ask questions like this? Just, just suppress them and stop thinking. He didn't say that to him. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, hey, John, remember remember when I got baptized and the dove came down? Didn't the hair stand up on the back of your necks? Didn't you feel goosebumps that night? That's how you know it's all true. You know, he didn't say that. But rather, what did he say? John, or Matthew 11, he says, go tell John what you've seen with your own eyes. The lame walk, the deaf hear the dumb speak the lepers are cleansed the dead are raised the poor have the gospel preached them blessed is the one who does not stumble over me Jesus appealed appear, appealed he appealed to things that they could see Jesus did miracles how many miracles did these other guys do I, again, again, I grew up assuming that all the great religious leaders and all the great religious traditions all did great miracles. If you were to ask a Muslim, what great miracle did Muhammad do? You know what they'd tell you? He gave us the Quran. He gave us the Quran. He gave us the book. Now, maybe that's a miracle in his... I, I've written a book. In my case, it's definitely a miracle. But, but you know, uh, doesn't compare to raising the dead doesn't compare to cleansing lepers. doesn't compare to feeding 5,000 with a couple of loaves and fish. How many miracles did Buddha do? There's not one recorded miracle of Buddha until hundreds of years after his death once Christian missionaries were already arriving in those lands saying, talking about Jesus. And then they said, oh yeah, Buddha did that too. Because Buddha didn't even necessarily believe in God. He was more agnostic. You look at these different religious leaders and, and some of the assumptions we make aren't accurate. Jesus did, it, this, the, the amazing miracles are unique to the Jewish Christian realm of religion. 
they prove something, don't they? In Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, I'll just tell the story. Jesus is, he's preaching one night and he's in a house. And there's a lot of people around. And it's a big crowd there. And some guys bring a paralyzed person that they want to have Jesus heal. But there's a big crowd filling the house. They can't get in. I don't know what you would do in that situation. I'm not sure what I would do, but I'll tell you what they did. They crawled on top of the house and dug a hole in the roof. And I can just picture Jesus kind of, you know, teaching and suddenly some dirt falls down and, you know, and then the, looks up and, you know, here comes a guy, you know, being lowered down on a, on a stretcher. A paralyzed man. He couldn't walk, laid down on a stretcher. And Jesus said to him, my son... Your sins are forgiven. Wow, that created some controversy. The people start whispering to one another. Did he say your sins are forgiven? Yes, what I heard. Well, who can forgive? Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? He's a mere man. Mere men can't forgive. What should we do? You know, they were they were bothered what's going on he just said your sins are forgiven and the only one who can do that is God so Jesus knew what they were murmuring whispering and grumbling about and he asked them this question he said which is easier to say son your sins are forgiven or to say son take up your pallet rise up take up your pallet and walk and by the way, I've counted the words, and the, the, it's easier to just say your sins are forgiven. But anyway. And, but then he said, but just so that you can know that I have the power to forgive sins. Rise. Take up your pallet. Take up your stretcher. And walk. And he did just that. He got up. A paralyzed man. A paralyzed man. Got up, picked up his stretcher, and walked. And the people were astonished. Who is this man that he even has the power to forgive sins? It's an amazing, an amazing God. But that leads to a, a third, that leads right into the third thing about Jesus that's really, really significant, that sets him apart from anyone else, and that is that he himself never committed a sin. He's the only one to ever do this. In Jesus' life, he was described in Hebrews as being holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners. Think of those words. What other person has ever used those words? Or what other person, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners? Truth is, everybody sins, including religious people. Did you know that? Even in our Bible, you think of the great people, you know, David, I mean, adultery, murder, pride, Moses, murder, Paul, tried to destroy the church of God, had people stoned. You go through scripture, you find even a lot of the great heroes in the Bible had some pretty bad sins upon them. And indeed, Historically, 
You know, it doesn't take a whole lot of research to look at guys, the other great religious leaders of other great religions that really did some sins, probably a whole lot worse than any of you've done, just like David did, just like Moses did, just like Paul did. Likewise, many of the great religious leaders did some really, really, really bad stuff. But Jesus, we read of Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, was how they described his life. When Jesus was going to be tried, his betrayer, Judas, how did he, what did he do? In remorse, he took the, the, the 30 pieces of silver, he threw them back into the temple, and he said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Remember Pilate, when they tried to have him crucified? Pilate finally said, give me my, he washed his hands, he said, you guys do what you want. I find no guilt in the man. If you want to cruise, that be on you. His blood be on you because I find him innocent. Jesus was able to stand in front of his accusers. Say, which one of you accused me of any sin? And the crowd was silent. They couldn't. Finally, at his trial, false accusations. They couldn't get anything to agree. The Bible presents Jesus Christ as having never sinned. Not a single time. Not once. Not a single deed, not a single word, not a single thought. Everything he did, he did in love. Everything he did, he did in holiness. Everything he did, he did as the Father would have him do. Have him do. That's why we worship him. He's no mere man. He's different. He's divine. He's the Son of God. He is indeed holy. And this is very, very important to our theology. I don't know if you've thought about this. A lot of people say, well, did Jesus, you know, a lot of people have never really thought, did Jesus sin? Some of them say, well, he kind of lost his temple. He kind of lost his temper there in the temple, didn't he? You know, he, you know, overturned those tables and drove the people out. Was that a sin? No. Scripture tells us why he did it. Zeal for the Father's house consumed him. It was love of God that caused him to cleanse the temple of the of the the." Um, uh, the money changers, the thieves, the, the people who were polluting and defiling God's house with their greed and so forth. That's why he did that. Jesus always did. He was a righteous man and always did the right thing. Now, why is that so important? Because it leads to the, right into the fourth thing Jesus Christ did for, that makes him unique. And what's that? He died for our sins. He died for our sins. He's the only one to ever do it. He had to be sinless or he couldn't have died for our sins. If he wasn't sinless, he would have had to die for his sins. Why? Because what does the Bible tell us? Romans 6, 23, Romans 6, 23 right? 23, 33, Romans 6, look it up. The, way, uh, the wages of sin is death. That's a, what's the reference? Amen. And what verse? Verse 6. Romans 6? Yes. 23. Got it. Thank you. Give me five. Good for you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Good. Romans 6, 23. The, the, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life of Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point? Sin brings death. Sin brings a judgment. Why do people die? 
sin. Now, by the way, this is not safe. You know, if your aunt died recently, you know, gee, was Tom up there calling her a sinner, you know, or if someone died young or something, they, they must be a sinner or something. No, sin affects all of us. We all are under the condemnation of sin. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, right? Because this sin condemnation passed down through the, through the man, through Adam and through the man. But Jesus had no earthly father. Jesus had, uh, he was born of a virgin. And as such, he had no, he did not have this condemnation of sin, the sin effect of Adam upon himself. And so Jesus um, was without sin. If he wasn't, if he sinned, he would have had to die for his sins, but he didn't sin, which qualified him to die for our sins. Isn't that awesome? But what's that mean? Have you ever stopped to really think about this? I grew up going to church. As a little boy, we grew up every Sunday, and I went to a traditional church, and we would recite the Apostles' Creed or, or the Nicene Creed, one of the two, every Sunday. And every Sunday, as long as I was growing up, I would say in church on Sunday, Christ died for my sins. Christ died for our sins. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't understand that. No one really showed me how to make that personal. So let me help you tonight if you've never known how to make that personal. The Bible says that sin brings a punishment. Sin is to break the law of God. It's to break the law of God in either my deeds, my words, even my motives and my thoughts can be breaking the law of God. We know the basic Ten Commandments, right? No other gods before him. Don't worship idols. Don't blaspheme his name. Honor his day. Honor your parents. Don't murder people. Don't commit adultery with people. Don't steal from people. Don't lie to people. Don't covet what belongs to other people. These are the basic commandments. Truth is, we've all broken them, haven't we? We've all broken at least one. And in spirit, we've broken more than one. Because Jesus said things like, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. And if you say to your brother, you empty head, good for nothing fool. He said, you're guilty enough to go to the fires of hell. Now, I don't think I've ever called anyone an empty head in my life. I don't know if you do, you know. I've used other words far worse to describe people, and I'm sure you have too. And so when we think of the laws of God and what is required, the truth is none of us get away free. None of us are without guilt. Every one of us has broken the laws of God, and those laws, breaking those laws require a punishment upon us. The wages, the consequences of sin is death. So imagine for a moment, and I want you to, I want you to do this, okay? This is not just, I want you to right now think for a moment about something that you've done personally that you know was bad. You know God would disapprove of. You may feel guilty about. You may feel ashamed of. You may feel, ugh, I wish I hadn't done that because that was bad. You know? 
I want you to think of one now. I'm not just saying do it. I'm saying do it, okay? Think for just a moment. We're not going to think about it long because we're going to leave happy tonight. Got one? Anyone, anyone need help? You don't have to tell me what it is. You don't have to tell me what it is. I don't want to know what it is. It's, between, it's a secret. Anyone need help? I'm, I'm, okay, all right. Now I have a question for you to answer. Did Jesus Christ do that? I see some heads uh, shaking. You're right. Jesus never did that. But when he went to the cross, he died for that. When he went to the cross, he bore God's wrath and God's judgment and God's punishment for that. It's as if God Almighty reached right into our soul and lifted every sin right up out of us. And then he placed it on Jesus Christ. And then he poured out wrath, anger, judgment upon Jesus Christ. He bore the cup for us. He drank the cup for us. He, he bore the wrath of God for us. He died for our sins. We owed a debt we could not pay. And he paid a debt he did not owe. That's what it means Christ died for our sins. He took our sins upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3, Christ also died for sins. Once for all, the just died for the unjust. The righteous one died for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says he is the full payment. That one man... On that one cross 2,000 years ago, there in Golgotha, as he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he cried out and he bore the wrath, the judgment of God in, in, in Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? What was he trying to avoid? What was he trying to say, Lord, do I really have to? The cup was the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath mixed in its fullness and it wasn't possible for him to avoid that if we were to be saved. And so he went to the cross. Father, not my will, but thy will be done. That's what he did. He went to the cross. He bore our judgment. And now to all who are in Christ, all of us who have faith in Christ, all of us who have received Jesus Christ, God's not going to punish you because Christ already bore the punishment for us. We are free. We are forgiven. Sins fully paid. Buried in the deepest sea. Separated like the east is from the west. These are the promises of God. Amen? Isn't that awesome? That's what it means he died for our sins. He died for your sins. I hope you've thanked him. I hope in your life, every day you thank him actually. I hope you say, God, I believe that. I, my, my faith, my trust, my hope is Jesus died for me. He took my sins and he bore the judgment so that I would not need to. It says in Scripture, Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused our iniquity to fall upon him. And that's what he did. Well, if that were all, the, if those four were the only things Jesus had done for us. By the way, he's probably 33 when he died for us. I'm, I'm comparing him to other religious leaders. Muhammad, how did he die? He got poisoned. You know, they conquered some city. He let a couple of women live. He killed all these other people. Let a couple of women. Shouldn't because it's one. She wasn't happy with him. Fixed him dinner one night. Oops. He got sick. Lived, he lived a while longer, but he never recovered from that. Uh, Buddha, just an old man. In his 80s. Probably ate, you know, just... just ate some uh, food and died of some dysentery, actually. Um, Krishna, the legend is, he got shot in a hunting accident. I, I've got to think it's, I mean, I, I don't want to laugh at this, but evidently he was tired, laid down behind a bush. Someone, someone was out hunting and they saw, oh, wow, there's something behind that bush and shot an arrow. Oops, that's Krishna I killed, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, let's go to the fifth thing. That's how the, those others died. But how, but how did Jesus claim to be God, never, backed it up by his miracles, never sinned, died for our sins, but then the last one, the biggie. What makes our religion different, better? Scripture, Scripture tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. This is not just talking about, you know, he lives on in our heart and we're all happy, live happily ever after. This is not a mythological claim. This is not something that's an allegory. Scripture presents the resurrection of Christ as a literal historical event. Real quickly, here are seven facts about it, real quick. Number one, a man named Jesus lived. Number two, he died. Number three, he was buried in a grave. Number four, fourth fact, three days later, the grave he was buried in, the body was gone. The, the, the grave clothes were still there, but the body was gone. I've been there. I've seen the tomb. It's pretty amazing where Jesus laid. And you could walk right in there where it says like the disciples came in and they saw where they had laid his body. And it's empty. It's empty. The tomb is empty. Number, he lived, he died, he was buried. The tomb was empty. Number five, over the next 40 days, on at least 10 separate occasions, multitudes of people claim to have actually seen him, talked with him, touched him, eaten with him. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see the very nail hole in his hand. I'm not going to fall for that. I got to see the nail hole in his hand, the, scar, the spear wound in his side before I'm going to believe. And eight days later, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Thomas, come look at my hands. Thomas, check out this spear wound. Thomas fell to his knees, my Lord and my God. I've been to the place in India where, where Thomas took the gospel and was martyred for his faith in Christ. Something happened to change him from the doubting Thomas 
to the missionary to India. Number six, because those people who said they saw him, they went out and they told people, they proclaimed it, they, they said it in the same streets, the same places where Jesus himself had been arrested and crucified, because they did that, they were persecuted. They were beaten up, they were thrown in jails, they were ultimately put to death. And number seven, not a single person who ever claimed to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ, not a single person of hundreds ever went back in their testimony, even when threatened with being beaten, even when threatened with prison, even when threatened with death, not a single one of them went back on it. To me, that's compelling. The only reason you wouldn't believe he rose is because you just say, well, people don't rise. But if you believe in a God who can do miracles and you believe miracles are possible, then the miracles of the Bible are possible, then the evidence, the evidence is in favor of the resurrection. The eyewitness, the people who were there, hundreds of them, who stood by it all the way till death and never went back. I saw it with my own eyes. He is risen. He's alive. So, what do I say tonight? Christianity, these five things are not presented to us as something you can have an opinion about. Like, what's your favorite ice cream? There's no right or wrong there. These things are presented to us. Jesus said he's the son of God. Either he is or he isn't. Jesus, it tells us that he died for our sins. Either he did or he didn't. Believing it doesn't make it true. Believing it makes it effective for you. But if it's true, it's true whether you believe it or not. Scripture tells us that after three days in the tomb, he rose physically, bodily from the dead. Either he did or he didn't. If he did, it's the most significant event of all history. It sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other idea. It sets Jesus apart from every other person. If he conquered death. If he didn't, then it's not true. No matter how many of us believe it, no matter how comforted we are by it, it's not true. It's not true, and our faith is in vain. I'm here tonight to say I really believe Jesus is exactly who he said he is. I believe he demonstrated by his miracles. I worship him for his sinless life. I'm grateful that he died for my sins, and I believe he is declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection from the dead. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ. Your Son, our Savior, and our Lord. Tonight, Lord, we just freshly affirm we believe in Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus. We, have, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we do believe that he is your only begotten son. We do believe that he, he's exactly who he said he is. We believe he is a sinless sacrifice. We believe, Jesus, that you died for us and we believe you rose again and are now seated with your Father. Tonight, Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never personally received you, never invited you to save them, never acknowledged this faith in you, Lord, that even just right now, it's so simple, they'd open up their life, their heart, their faith to you. 
and simply say, Father, I receive. I receive tonight from Jesus. I receive forgiveness. I receive life. I receive salvation. I receive what you want to give me, Father. My faith is in Jesus, and I receive what you have for me. Help us, Lord. Help no one in this room tonight to resist you, to block you, to say no to you, to, to put you off. You're a good God, a gracious God, a giving God. We receive from you tonight. Jesus, we, as the living God, conquered death by your spirit. You went to the Father and you sent the Spirit. Oh, might the Spirit fill us tonight. Everyone in this room, Lord, every one of us, might we be filled with the Spirit of God, empowered by him to be lights for this world, to be different, to be living testimony of, of the greatness of Jesus Christ living in us. We thank you. Bless you with all of our heart in Jesus' name. Amen.